Welcome to the Rock Hill Dream Center Church, where we have a vision to see communities transformed by the gospel as we love, serve, share, and send. Thank you for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. It is my joy to introduce to you this morning another one of our dear friends that has come over from a fellow church of ours, North Rock Hill, and come to bless us with some time this morning. I have lost my email that had all of your fun facts, so you get to share them. But I do remember the one that we talked about this morning. This is Rob Lowry, everybody. Rob, you can come on up. Rob is from North Rock Hill Church. Yeah. Um, and he will, he will give you his family information because, as you can tell, he knows it better than me anyway. And, um, but one thing I did ask Rob to share um, that, I, that stood out to me is the same thing I've asked all the pastors. What's your life dream or life goal? And when I asked him that, he said to uh, pastor a multi-ethnic church that um, is known for their discipleship within the church body and their love for the community. And I said, man, I'm glad you're getting to come and spend some time with us here at the Dream Center. So give it up for Rob Lowry this morning. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, again, my name is Rob Lowry, and I bring you greetings of grace and peace from North Rock Hill Church, where my wife and I attend, along with our two children. Uh, Nora is our seven-year-old. She just turned seven last month, and, and Griffin, he turned nine just last week. And uh, my wife's birthday is coming up this week, and... Uh, because by God's grace, I am happily married and to intend to do my best to stay that way. I'm not going to tell you how old she is, um, but I do want you all to know how humbled and honored I am uh, to be with you all this morning. And I want to thank each of you for your hospitality uh, to me, someone you don't know, but probably someone many of you just met this morning. And uh, the good news of the gospel is that I am your brother in Christ and I am honored um, it is a joy to worship with you all uh, this morning. Our, our family actually lives not too far from here, and I was born and raised in Rock Hill. I, I played sports as a kid, and one of those sports was baseball. I was not a good baseball player. Um, I could field the ball, but I struggled to hit the ball, and I was so bad at hitting the ball, and, and I was also so small that my coach would have me crunch down in the back of the batter's box making my strike zone about the size of a dollar bill uh, in hopes that I would reach base by, if it wasn't going to happen by getting a hit, hopefully it was going to happen uh, by me being walked. And our, our coach, he didn't mind strikeouts um, as long as we struck out swinging, right? So as opposed to just watching the ball go by, you know, getting a called strike three, as long as we swung, as long as we showed some type of effort at, at least to attempt a hit, uh, he was at least more pleased with us, even though we would, we would get an out. And as Christians, I feel like we often struggle with our approach in a similar way to our personal ministry. And the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, why do we struggle to speak with boldness and belief when we are given the opportunity to speak the truth of God's words into the lives of others? Whether it's sharing the gospel with a neighbor, speaking truth and grace into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, or, or, you know, to be honest, and we'll talk about this later, pointing ourselves to Scripture, we have a responsibility to take this word from God and rightly make it known when the situation to do so 
arises. My main idea for you all this morning is this. As followers of Christ, we are called to a life of proclaiming the word of God in the presence of God for the purposes of God. As followers of Christ, we are called to a life of proclaiming the word of God in the presence of God for the purposes of God. And if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be in the first five verses. Paul's, this is Paul's second letter to Timothy. Uh, Paul writ, wrote it while he was in prison in Rome awaiting his execution. And Timothy was in Ephesus as a pastor there. And Timothy was receiving this letter from Paul who was sensing the end of his life. It was drawing closer and closer. He was in prison awaiting execution. Paul gives this charge to Timothy who is a young pastor and Paul's dear friend. And that's what's so special as we look at a letter in the Bible. We, we need to remember that this is a communication between, in this case, two people. Paul, who is a young pastor, um, I'm sorry, Paul is the apostle and Timothy, his young pastor and dear friend. And it's a charge which is applicable to all of us as we seek to li- live a life of proclaiming God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you the praise and the thanks due to your glorious name just for the opportunity to gather this morning to open your word to hear from you what it is you would have us to hear. And so, God, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way, that you would do a work that only your Holy Spirit can do through me and in the hearts of those who will hear this message today. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in these first five verses, we read Paul's charge to Timothy. Basically, his intense instruction, as I like to call it, to his his student in ministry. And so we're going to look at a few things here. We're going to start with the what. So the what, which is kind of the the central imperative, the central thing that he's telling Timothy to do, that can be found in verse 2, and it is three words, preach the word. Now, to preach means to herald or to proclaim. You can think of it way back when a town crier would make proclaimed announcements from the king. So in, in a similar way, uh, we are to, uh, a preacher's role is to proclaim scripture from God, this word from God. Notice Paul doesn't write preach a word, he writes preach the word. Now the word is the whole counsel of God and it points to what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. We find this in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24, but we preach Christ crucified. 
Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Timothy is not to preach his own ideas or his own thoughts. He's not giving self-help advice or, or offering his perspective on philosophy or science. No, he must preach the word of God. Now, just because you may not stand on a stage on Sunday morning or you don't have the title of pastor next to your name, don't think that this passage doesn't apply to you. If you are a Christ follower, you are a preacher. All Christians, to some degree, are all preachers, and we are all called to proclaim this word. This word that was written by many people, but has one author. This word that contains hundreds of stories, all which point to one story. The one story of God's plan to create a perfect world with perfect people made in his image who would all enjoy loving him and loving each other perfectly. But this word tells us that the people God created ruined his plan because they chose to love themselves, not God. This is called sin, and because of sin, they could no longer have a relationship with God. They deserved his punishment and needed his forgiveness. Unfortunately, because the people, of, people God created ruined his plan, we are born with a sin nature. So we too are deserving of his punishment in need of his forgiveness. We too are separated from God because of our sin. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Now, this word tells us that God was not surprised that people chose not to love him, and he knew that his story included a rescue plan. Two of my favorite words in the Bible put together, but God. God came to earth as a person, Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus showed us how to love God and love others through his perfect obedience. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself and the punishment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. And because we are forgiven, we can have a relationship with God. And not just any relationship. We are part of his family. He is our heavenly father. God no longer sees you as a guilty, shameful sinner. He sees you as his beloved son or daughter with whom he is well pleased. Not because of anything you did, but because of the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He defeated sin on the cross and he defeated death when he rose back to life. He went back to heaven and gave the people his spirit to help them love God and love each other. This word tells us that one day God will finish his plan. Jesus will come back and make us and the world perfect again. There will be no more pain, no more death, no more sickness, no more crying. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. You see this in this word. This word which points us to, as John in his gospel says, the word. The word has a name. Hope has a name. Joy has a name, peace has a name, love has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. This word silences our shame, our fears, and our worries. It is the ultimate source of wisdom, truth, and grace. It can both comfort, as David tells us in Psalm 19, by reviving the soul and, and rejoicing the heart, and it can also convict 
as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, because it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. It is as Paul writes in the verses just above our passage this morning. Look up two verses. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, this is the word that we have to preach, to proclaim. As I was preparing this past week and weeks leading up, I really felt led to say what I'm about to say right now, and that is we often, and, and very often if I'm being quite honest, but especially in certain times in our lives, in, ad- in addition to preaching to this word to each other, we need to preach the word to ourselves. In our flesh and sin nature, we need to be reminded of the truths of the word often to remind ourselves of who God is and his great gospel message to us. Recently, the Psalms have been a treasure for me in doing so. And just a few weeks ago, I was reading Psalm 103. And if you can quickly head over that way. If not, that's okay. Just listen. Psalm 103, the first five verses say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Jump down to verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. David gives us an exact blueprint of what it means to preach the word to ourselves, right? And David is using the exact words that God spoke to Moses back in Exodus 34. So the beauty and the brilliance of the word is that the word helps us proclaim the word to ourselves. Now that we know the what of the charge, let's go back to verse 1 where we will see the who of the charge. And it is in verse 1 we see that My first point for today is that a life of proclaiming God's words involve, I'm sorry, a life of proclaiming God's word involves holy accountability. So let's look at verse 1 again. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So we see real quickly here the who of the charge includes God, right? He is the center of the charge. Christ Jesus, he's the judge of the charge. Paul is giving the charge, and Timothy is the receiver of the charge. And so from the very beginning, Paul sets a very holy tone. He puts God at the center of his instruction to Timothy to preach the word. So as he nears the end of his life, Paul reminds Timothy that after Paul is dead and gone, God and Christ Jesus are now and always will be witnesses to Timothy's preaching. So Timothy should not become too arrogant, 
from any fame or celebrity he receives from those he preaches to, nor should he be so overly discouraged when his preaching is unnoticed or overlooked. So while preaching is for the encouragement of the people who hear it, the evaluation of that preaching is from God and Him alone. And Paul furthers that holy accountability of preaching by reminding Timothy of the second coming of Christ Jesus, who will, it says here at the time, judge the living and the dead, who will at His second coming bring His kingdom to completion. Lastly, the holy accountability of preaching is given by Paul to Timothy. So again, remember, the relationship between Paul and Timothy is very much one of a a teacher-student Also more like a spiritual father, spiritual son. But that said, we must remember, along with Timothy, that Paul is more than Timothy's teacher. He is a spiritual father. He is an apostle. He is one who speaks with authority. And so Paul affirms that authority through his letters. And in this particular letter, uh, you can look back up at at chapter 1. He reminds Timothy that it was God who who saved us and called us to a holy calling... Because of God's own purpose and grace, and in verse 10, it was for which Paul was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher. Now, if you've already read through, as you read through these verses with me, you, you saw real quickly a list of things that we should do. And it's in our nature just to go ahead and jump to those and, you know, get my checklist out and see what we need to do. But what this charge reminds us, it's really easy to ask the question, what should I be like, as we read this passage and you know, many passages of Scripture. It is very, that's a very valid question and one that we should ask. But the primary question, the first question we should ask as we approach Scripture should always be, what is God like? What is God doing? So in this passage, we see that God is ever-present. He is a witness to our life of ministry. We also see Jesus as the judge. We see the promise of his return. So while these qualities of God and Jesus are serious in tone, they are also of great strength to each of us. Because remember, our ultimate call is faithfulness to God, not the popularity of of others. His ministry is eternal and will be complete upon the glorious appearance of the coming of Christ. So while these truths should help humble us, they should also help encourage us. As we hear God's word preached to us, and as we seek to proclaim God's word to others. So we've looked at the what of the charge and the who of the charge. Now let's look at the second half of verse 2 where we will see the how of the charge. Verse 2 tells us that in addition to involving a holy accountability, a life of proclaiming God's word is a holy responsibility. A life of proclaiming God's word is is a holy responsibility. Verse 2 again says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So we see here Paul describes this holy responsibility of proclaiming God's word again with four imperatives, four more to-dos. The first is to be ready in season and out of season. This is a call to preparation at all times. Not just when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient. Not just when it's planned, but when it's unexpected. Not just in joyous times, but also in times of grief. Paul offers three more imperatives, three more to-dos that are more specific and are sequential. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So when we reprove, we show a certain behavior or belief to be wrong. 
When we rebuke, we focus on the seriousness of that behavior or belief we have reproved. Now, while to reprove and rebuke are negative imperatives, no one likes to be told they're wrong, right, and need to change. Nobody, we don't like that. To exhort is a positive. Everyone likes to be encouraged, right? I think it was true at Kathy. He said, how do you know somebody needs to be encouraged if they're breathing, right? So everybody likes to be encouraged. So we've shown the behavior believed to be wrong. We have explained to them why, and now we exhort or encourage them by telling them that with the help of the Holy Spirit, this behavior or belief can be overcome. Now, this sequence of rebuking, reproving, and exhorting must occur in a certain way. What's that way? With complete patience and teaching. So a pastor, or as a fellow brother or sister in Christ, we must not be harsh or impatient. We must not expect immediate results. And just as I read this, my kids, my, you know, me, my parenting jumps out at me. Instead, we must patiently guide, we must be committed to slow progress, we must embrace confrontation as necessary, but we must seek to console and inspire through teaching and explanation. I was uh, walking my yard late one spring afternoon looking for weeds, because that's what you do when you get older and become a dad, and I was expecting the growth of the grass as the uh, grass was coming out of its winter dormancy, and while I was walking the day on this particular yard, my, my neighbor across the street walked over and he asked what I was doing, and so after explaining to him why I was looking at my grass so closely, he started to tell me about how his grandson had taken some interest in some of the Jewish customs of Holy Week. You see, this was the week uh, before Easter. And he was telling me how he had explained to his grandson about the Passover and why it was important in the Jewish tradition. Now, my neighbor is not a follower of Christ. Uh, he is a very, very smart man, though, very well-educated, knows a lot about a lot of things, including a lot of religions. And so we've had gospel conversations before, but on this particular day, distracted by my yard, by what my kids were doing or shouldn't have been doing nearby or just oblivious to the opportunity to before me, I completely missed my opportunity to share again or in another way the good news of, of the gospel. I was not ready in that season. To use the baseball analogy from earlier, I was given the perfect pitch and I just let the ball go right by. I just watched it go by, and, and, and I want to say, too, may we not be scared or worried, but prepared and confident when we are given the opportunity to proclaim the word. I love this quote by H.B. Charles, Jr., one of my favorite pastors. He says, it's not our preaching that makes the word work. It's the word that makes our lousy preaching work. If you were to have a conversation at lunch today with a family member or later this week, if you were to see your neighbor as you were in your yard or on a walk, as you interact with your co-workers or students, with your classmates, would you be ready to preach the word? Do you have a favorite message or passage or story that you would be ready to share? To preach God's word, we must be prepared, and to be prepared, we must know God's word. We know God's Word by reading it regularly, studying it often, meditating on it, yes, even memorizing it. 
a passage of scripture that is near and dear to my family and is most likely familiar with many of you is Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The prophet of The prophet Jeremiah wrote these words in the aftermath of the complete destruction of Jerusalem uh, by, by Babylon. And so as he's gazing upon this death and starvation, an emotional response of, of despair is completely under, would be completely understood. But Jeremiah doesn't have despair. He has hope. And he has hope because of he know because he knows about God. He knows who God is. So if you look at the verse just prior to that, verse 21, it says, but this I call to mind and therefore I had hope. You see, Jeremiah was able to call to mind that which he already knew to help him during this time of of despair. Jeremiah is able to have hope because he knows God's word and we can have that same hope too when in the midst of difficulties, we call to mind God's word and proclaim it to ourselves and to others. We've looked at the what, the who, and the how. Verse 3 and 4 show us the why. Let's read those verses again. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So we've seen that a life of proclaiming God's word involves holy accountability. That is a holy responsibility. These verses help us see that it is also a holy necessity. A life of proclaiming God's word is a holy necessity. Paul writes in Romans that because we are born with a sin nature, what he calls ungodliness and unrighteousness. That unrighteousness has the effect of suppressing the truth. So by our very own nature, we don't like to be rebuked and reproved, like like what we talked about before. We don't like to be confronted with the truth that opposes our sinful desires. We prefer confirmation, oh, you're doing just fine, over confrontation, you need to stop. We don't want preachers or others our brothers and sisters in Christ, meddling with our consciousness. We want them to tell us that what we are thinking or doing is is just fine, to keep on doing it. We want to be pleased and pacified instead of challenged and changed. When we desire confirmation over confrontation, it follows then that we are attracted to teachers that give us what we want, and then we begin to turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We prefer a fiction that confirms or encourages our sinful desires over the truth that confronts and opposes those desires. Summer is officially over, and that means the heat, humidity, and the mosquitoes are gone too. Praise God, yes. I have a list of questions I want to ask God when I get to heaven, one of which is, why did you create mosquitoes? Like, is that part of creation, or is that part of the fall? Um... Our kids love to be outside, especially during the summertime. They're actually outside when I left to, came, left to come over this way, and especially during the summer, which means, despite my best and, as many of you all can understand, most expensive efforts, 
to keep those mosquitoes away, our kids will be bitten by them. Now, my son, he can leave his mosquito bite alone, and so it goes away within a couple hours, maybe a day at the most. But my daughter, she itches and itches and itches, and as she itches, she starts to dig into the skin, and then the skin, the bite then bleeds, and then it scabs, and then she's a picker, so then she will pick the scab, which causes more bleeding, which causes a bigger wound to develop and longer for the longer, more time for the wound to heal. So what was an annoying mosquito bite that would, again, have gone away in a day or two max has now grown into a wound that needs ointment, a Band-Aid, and up to a week or more to heal. And that's if she just leaves the thing alone. In the same way, but with deeper and much more eternal implications, we know the truth of this word. We know that we need to pursue Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in reading and studying God's word and through devoted prayer to our Heavenly Father. But we get that itch, right? That itch from fear, that itch from an idol or pride or, or some other passion that we are trying to satisfy. And instead of taking it to God and filtering it through his word and through scripture, we itch it and we itch it and we itch it some more until we find ourselves turning from the truth and we wander off into myths. We wander off into lies and into fiction. What started out as a small itch that could have been healed with the anti-itch cream of the words of this book has now become a wound that needs much more work, much more healing to be restored to health. And in our culture today, fear is one of the predominant itches that we feel needs to be scratched, right? Fueled by social media and, and news media, our cultural and political climate fans the flames of fear, especially towards those who are not like us. Those who are different in skin color, different ethnicities, speak a different language, have a different social or economic class, even a different political belief. And instead of turning to God's word, which says in this exact letter from Paul to Timothy just a couple chapters earlier, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, of self-control. No, instead of Turning to that truth, we turn to our social media feeds and our, our news media hosts to just, again, continue to scratch that itch. And I want to say that if you're listening to voices that are making you more and more afraid of your neighbors and more and more afraid of the people who are different than you, those voices are not leading you by the Spirit of Christ. I don't care if they call themselves Christians. And we're about to head into a a presidential election where we're going to need to know this truth. If they're stoking fears, it is not the Spirit of God that is leading them. And that's a lot of what media does. It is not causing us to love our neighbors more. It is causing us to fear them. And in fear, it is impossible to obey the commands of Jesus. Plain and simple. It's time we turn off the voices that are causing us to be more and more afraid. Lastly, in verse 5, we see the why of Paul's charge to Timothy. A life of proclaiming God's word involves holy accountability. It is a holy responsibility and a holy necessity. In this verse, we see that a life of proclaiming God's word is a holy endeavor. Paul writes, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul closes his charge to Timothy with four more imperatives, four more things to do. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, 
Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So now to be so reminded is, is, is in a call to alertness and awareness. We have to have a clear head no matter the situation or circumstance. To endure suffering is to accept whatever consequences may arise from preaching the word to those who do not want to hear its message. And Timothy is also charged to do the work of an evangelist. Now, Ephesians 4.11, from that verse, we know that some people are specifically gifted for evangelism. But in this passage, however, it's not an office to be filled, but a task that should be part of every pastor's work, part of every Christian's work. Paul's focus here is Timothy's specific gospel proclamation. He's He is not just to teach the word of God to fellow Christians. He is to proclaim the gospel to those who do not believe. This last imperative is a summary of the previous three. Timothy must be clear-headed, be willing to suffer, and proclaim the gospel to the lost. All these things. But he has to do those in order to fulfill the task to which he has been called by God. As Garrett mentioned when he introduced me, my dream is to be a pastor. I'm a banker right now. Uh, I work for South State Bank, but one day I do aspire to be a pastor in full-time ministry. And about a year ago, I actually strongly considered a very specific opportunity, but to, due to a lot of reasons, I felt God tell me that the time wasn't right. And I can remember thinking, what do you mean the time isn't right? Like, shouldn't the time always be right to leave a, a secular job and, and go into full-time ministry? And that question I'm still learning the answer to, so I have not completely figured that out. But I do know that when that specific time comes, or if it comes at all, by God's grace and in His strength, He has given me the opportunity to pastor people over this last year while also working as a banker. I have grieved with friends as they mourn the death of loved ones, and I have rejoiced with other friends as they celebrate other loved ones going from spiritual death to life in Christ. I have consoled them through hurt they've experienced and watched God not only heal that hurt, but use it for their good and for His glory. I have done my best to encourage parents through the difficulty of parenting children with specific needs, and I have seen the joy of a couple becoming parents through adoption. You see, again, I am not the hero of this story. I'm still standing over here with my arms crossed going, you know, when's the time, when's the time, when's the time? But again, it's, it is by God's grace that I have come to learn and understand that I don't need to, to wait to be in full-time ministry to, to have the job title of pastor. No, again, by His grace and in His strength, I am to do my best to fulfill the ministry that God has given me right here, right now. And as part of that, I have given the opportunity to preach the word this morning. So praise God for his continued faithfulness and provision. What is the ministry God has called you to fulfill today during this time in your life? Is it the ministry of being a godly spouse, a godly parent, a godly grandparent, a godly single person, a godly student? Is there a specific ministry within the church he is calling you to fulfill? And I promise Paul and Garrett did not pay me extra to say that. Or is it a more general ministry in the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community? Or is God calling you to be a pastor or perhaps a missionary? 
This passage contains nine imperatives. Again, nine things that Paul instructs Timothy to do. Now, if you're a check per, checklist person like me, you are probably licking your chops and ready to bust out of those doors at the end of the service to get to work on what Paul is telling you to do here. At least I hope you are. And while I appreciate that eagerness and that zeal, again, we must be reminded to stop and first ask, what is God like? What is he doing? Before we jump to, what should I be like? And next, we need to remember that it is not in our own strength that we can accomplish what is instructed right here. Again, in the, his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul, the same man who wrote these words, wrote, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. From this passage, Paul's written letter and charge to Timothy, we see, again, a life of proclaiming God's word involves holy accountability, that it is a holy responsibility, a holy necessity, and a holy endeavor. And yes, while this passage could primarily be applied to preachers as followers of Christ, we are all called to a life of proclaiming the word of God in the presence of God for the purposes of God. We look to these words of exhortation in God's word. We look at the life of Paul who lived them out so very well. And ultimately, let us look to Christ, to his example during his time on earth. Again, drawing not on our own strength, but on the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the particular ministry God has assigned to each of us. J.C. Ryle said, Tell the young, tell the poor, tell the aged, tell the ignorant, tell the sick, tell the dying, tell them all about Christ. Brothers and sisters, preach the word. This word, which points to the word, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Swing the bat, or as Paul wrote, plant and water, and trust God to give the growth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good and you are so great. And in your goodness, you have given us your word that tells the greatest story ever told, the story that every person needs to hear. And we confess, Lord, that we are quick to preach our political beliefs. We are quick to preach our sports teams. We are quick to preach um, what our kids or grandkids are doing. And so, God, I pray that through these words to Timothy and through this teaching this morning that you would encourage us and compel us to preach the word by the power of your Holy Spirit. May we look to Christ who during his first appearing and for his father's kingdom is the word we are to preach and proclaim. It is he who was always ready to reprove, rebuke, and exhort through his teaching with the most perfect patience. He was always sober-minded. He endured suffering unto death, even death on a cross, and who while he was alive on earth did the work of an evangelist, and who when he ascended into heaven after his death had fulfilled his earthly ministry. And it is the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead through whom we can strive to do all these things also. I pray that it would be so. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.